Hello, my name is Taylor Clement. I'm Maria Massey. And I'm Leonard Sachs. And we are here today, parents, with our guest, Dr. Leonard Sachs. He is in from the Philadelphia area. We're thrilled to have him, and he's our keynote speaker this evening. And we'll be talking about 21st century parenting. But a New York Times bestselling author, um, he has done so many different things, and we'll we'll get to some of those. But today, we're just glad to have you. So thank you for being with us. Thanks for coming to St. Louis. Thanks for and, inviting me. Yeah, and we're just gonna kind of start with a few questions, and we'll get right into it because. You're chock full of information, and what I love is, is it's not just opinions. You back your, your thoughts up with the research. You back your thoughts up with pragmatism. You back your thoughts up with Scripture as well, and that's incredibly encouraging to a Christian community. So first question, if you could just tell our listeners, who are you? Well, uh, my name is Leonard Sachs. I attended public schools uh, in Shaker Heights, Ohio, K-12. through I earned my bachelor's in biology at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I earned my doctorate in psychology and my MD, my medical degree, at Penn University of Pennsylvania. Um, I am board certified in family medicine. I am a practicing physician. Um, this is my day off. Um, 18 years ago, I started visiting schools. I've now visited over 400 schools across the United States and around the world. I've written four books, uh, Why Gender Matters, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, and The Collapse of Parenting. And the collapse of parenting is one that our faculty has read. Um, that was their summer reading assignment, which was fantastic. Yeah. I think particularly in between, um, we define ourselves rather as a partnership school, and we want to partner with families. We believe in the model of a three-legged stool. We want to see our families partner with the church and partner with us in the rearing of children. So a quarter, three strands is not easily broken is what scripture says, and we want to unify that cord. And I felt like your book, The Collapse of Parenting, really strengthen that. How do we do that as adults in raising children and not allowing children to raise adults, which I feel like it often happens. So let me ask you this, and then I'm going to turn a lot of these questions over to Maria. Um, but when you were had children in your home and, and raising them, did you learn as a parent and thus that kind of formulated your ideas, or were you... Um, doing this research and then coming home and using your children is... is no. Uh, no, so my wife and I have been married 29 years. Uh, and after we've been married six years with no kids, we got evaluated. My wife was told, you are infertile, your tubes were scarred, and you'll never have kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so the driving force for the books was not what was going on at home, but what I was seeing as a family doctor. Mm. Uh, growing proportion of boys who think school is for girls, who hate school, who'd rather play video games, who are being diagnosed with ADD, uh, when in fact some of these boys don't have ADD, they just hate school. Yeah. A growing proportion <laughs> of girls who are anxious uh, or depressed. Uh, and that's where the motivation for the writing and, and the school visits and the books came from, was what I was seeing as a clinician. Then after 15 years of marriage, my wife conceived, and we do have one child, a daughter, mm. uh, who just turned 13. And so all of my clinical work and my research and my visits have been very good training to Absolutely. be a parent. Yeah. And I absolutely 
practice what I preach. I've got a little video of my daughter speaking to the camera saying why she doesn't want a cell phone. She's 13. She does not have a cell phone. She doesn't want a cell phone. She would much rather uh, practice her dancing or uh, babysit a child. She loves watching little kids. Her dream is to be a kindergarten teacher or a pre-K teacher um, or teaching our dog tricks or running. She's a cross-country runner, competes for the school. Um, or watching Gidget with me. We've watched every episode of Gidget, which oh, is available wow. free. If you're throwback. a member <laughs> yeah. of Prime, you can watch every episode free. Um, and so, yes, I absolutely do practice what I preach. Mm -hmm. And I'm very fortunate that we have a strong marriage. Uh, and we, my wife and I, speak as one voice in mm -hmm. limiting and governing and guiding what our daughter does with a screen, what she watches on TV, which isn't much uh, besides Gidget uh, <laughs> and The Flying Nun. Uh, she also likes to watch, um, oh, it's an old Western that she watches with my wife's parents. Uh, 11 years ago, I recruited my wife's parents to move in with us, so we have three generations in the home. That was a brave move. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's the Virginian. The Virginian. Uh, she and her grandparents have watched most episodes of the Virginian uh, that they like to watch together. Is television good or bad? It depends. Kids should not be in their bedroom with the door closed watching TV. Mm -hmm. That's a bad thing. That's not just my opinion. Those are the official guidelines for people who study this. Um, but I think television can be great. My daughter and I have really enjoyed watching Gidget, which incidentally is a great uh, TV program that describes a strong and loving relationship between a father and a teenage daughter. And it just teaches so many good lessons that caring what other kids think can lead you in the wrong direction. That the parent-child bond needs to set the direction. With a loving parent, and Gidget is a, a a widowed father with his teenage daughter, and they negotiate things together uh, in a in a very healthy way. And the father knows when to let her loose and when to rein her in. And that's the question that all of us have to deal with sure. as parents. So I want to go back to something you just mentioned, because I think this comes up for our parents a lot, is you said it's a bad idea to let your kid watch TV alone in their bedroom, which I think we could expand that probably to a cell phone or mm -hmm. tablet yep. as well. What is it about that that makes it dangerous? All right, so this evening when I speak to parents, we're going to talk about the rates of anxiety and depression among children and teens in the United States, which have gone way up in recent decades. Well, what changed in American culture? Well, a number of things changed. And again, this evening we're going to really do a deep dive into why American culture has become so toxic for children and teens and what we can do as parents to improve the odds for our kids. But one thing that has changed, we know, we don't have to guess. Uh, look at the work of James Coleman, who was a world-renowned sociologist at Johns Hopkins. Fifty years ago, he led his students, his graduate students, across the United States conducting structured interviews with high school kids in the United States. And one of the questions he would ask them is, 
If all your friends wanted you to join a particular club, but one of your parents did not agree, would you still join? Fifty years ago, the majority of American teens said no. If all their friends wanted them to join a club and one of their parents did not approve, they would not join. Because 50 years ago, American teens, on average, valued the opinion of their parents more than they had valued the combined opinion of all their peers. So I have visited, as you know, many, many schools. Um, and I've, I often meet with students. And I've asked kids across the United States, uh, an updated version of Dr. Coleman's question. I've asked them, if all your friends wanted you to sign up for a particular social media site, would you consult your parents first? And the most common answer I get from American kids is not yes, it's not no, it's laughter. They burst out laughing. You have to wait half a minute for the laughter to subside. And a girl raises her hand on a call on her. She says, my parents would probably think Ask FM is some kind of website. I, excuse me, my parents would think Ask FM is some kind of radio station. They don't know what Ask FM is. Why would I consult with my parents? Wow. Uh, scholars have found that American children and teens today prioritize same-age peer relations over the parent-child relationship. Sure. That when a kid is in his bedroom or her bedroom alone, online or looking at a TV uh, show, they're looking at shows that other kids their own age are looking at. They are prioritizing same-age peer relations. It's about knowing what's cool in the eyes of your peers, which means you're on Instagram, you're on YouTube, watching what the other kids are watching. And the parents are out of touch and really have no interest in the latest uh, YouTube video from Nicki Minaj or Miley Cyrus, but that's what all the kids are watching. So that's what your kid is watching, and they are being sucked into this culture, sure. which I show is a toxic culture. You don't want that for your kid. You need to prioritize the parent-child bond above same-age peer relations. We've got very good evidence, which I present, that when kids prioritize the same-age peer relation above the parent-child relation, they're much more likely to be anxious. Why is that? It's very simple. Suppose my daughter were to say to me, I hate you, I'm never gonna talk to you ever again. Well, there'd be, she's never said that, but let's suppose she did say that. There would be consequences, and her mother and I would discuss what privileges she would lose and for how long as a result of that outburst. But nothing fundamental would change. She would not lose her place in our home. We would not stop loving her. There's nothing that she could do or say that would cause us to stop loving her. But suppose she says those same words to a friend at school. I hate you. I'm never going to talk to you ever again. That friendship is over, yep. or it is at least badly damaged. Peer relations are contingent and ephemeral. That's a fancy way of saying that friendships between children and teens come and go, and every kid knows it. You can go from being the most popular girl to being the odd girl out in one day, in five minutes. So you want to see an American teenage girl have a total meltdown, take her phone from her without warning, and she will totally freak out. She'll be like, Emily doesn't know I don't have my phone. What happens if she texts me and I don't answer? She's going to think I'm ignoring her. She's going to think I don't like her. And you can go, as I said, from being the most popular girl to being the odd girl out in five minutes. So all the girls are glued to their phones. This well-documented transformation in American culture from kids valuating, valuing the parent-child relation above the peer relation, which was the case in this country 50 years ago, to what we have now with kids valuing peer relationships 
about the parent-child relationship is immensely toxic and very dangerous, and parents must step in to stop it. How do you stop it? Here's one very simple suggestion. Have one television in the home. Mm. We have one television in our family room. We watch the same shows together as a family. And parents will say, oh, but your daughter's going to miss out when the other kids are talking about YouTube or the latest show that the kids are watching. She won't know. That's okay. We are communicating to her that the family bond is more important than being up on the latest gossip in your peer group. And she is fine with that. The parent-child relation is not contingent. It's not ephemeral. She knows we will always love her. That is a solid foundation. If your kid values what the other kids think more than the parent-child relationship, then she is going to be anxious because what other th kids think and feel towards her can change overnight. Sure. And, you know, what you're saying um, brings to mind the work of Sue Johnson, who does um, couples counseling. And so she talks about how important it is for us to have a secure base so that we may go out and explore the world. Mm -hmm. And that that's how we're designed um, as humans. The science backs that up. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's reminding me of, that if, if our kids have a secure base to draw on, a relationship that is not conditional, it is unconditional, that they can then go and make decisions about um, who to be friends with, and they can, they can put aside some of the anxiety and embrace, you know, what else the world has to offer. Provided that the parent understands their role and their mission. So boys want to be men, girls sure. want to be women. That means part of the father's job is to teach his son to be a man. Mm -hmm. But increasingly in the United States, I am finding not boys who want to be men, but men who want to be boys. It is now common to find American <laughs> fathers who want to sit and play Fortnite with their 12-year-old son, and their son is going to teach dad how to sure. play the game because the son knows the game better than the dad does. And I grab that dad and I say, don't do that. That's not the way we're designed. And the result of that inversion is that the boy is confused. He thinks he knows better than his father does about how to do these these, these mm. boy tasks of winning at Fortnite, and that father is setting his son adrift. So you're saying find a way to connect with your son, yes, not over something yeah. like the video game. Well, again, I want to be very careful what I'm saying here. I'm not making a blanket statement that kids should, that parents should never play video games sure. with their kids. I have played Wii uh, bowling with my daughter and we have a great time and I see yeah. nothing wrong with that it's it's a cold and windy day outside and and we don't feel like going out and uh, so okay we bowling uh, for half an hour I don't see anything wrong with that I'm not saying video games are categorically bad but it can't be the whole story mm -hmm. and and we yeah. very seldom do that actually we haven't done that in years now probably um, you want to engage your child in the real world yeah. and so for example my daughter and I go outdoors and do archery which I am competent to teach mm -hmm. her or we go for hikes in the woods uh, we're engaging her in the world or we'll go to visit her grandparents relatives one of whom's in a nursing home uh, we're going this Thursday for just that purpose in Lancaster County Pennsylvania um, 
that's what kids need. They need the parent to introduce them to the real world, to the complexities and the richness of the real world, and not to, s not to have your primary activity together being playing a video game where the son is teaching the father. Sure. Going back to the 50-year mark, thinking about that in a, in a greater capacity, so immediately two things come to mind, at least in media, and that's Greece and that's uh, American Graffiti. Or two, you know, two mm -hmm. movies, two musicals, um, or at least one musical, and you think about what is said in front of the parent to what is said in front of the friends, and and you know the vacillation between the two. Where where did that move? Where did the needle move along along the path of fifty years? And in thinking that okay, it's one thing to say yes, I surrender to the rules of my parents, but I'm going to go out and I'll talk about them behind their backs, or you know. I'll be insulting in comparison to I will surrender. Uh, yeah. I, I may have given the, the wrong impression. I do want to clarify uh, the disclaimer here, which is that 50 years ago were not the good old days. 50 mm -hmm. years ago, American also. culture was much more racist and sexist than it is today. We don't want to go back to that era. But I do think we can learn from the past. And it is a robust empirical finding that American kids 50 years ago were much less likely to be anxious and depressed than they are today. Mm -hmm. So why is that? Can we get a handle on that? Well, part of the problem is that the culture has changed. Uh, and of course, it's changed in some good ways. The culture is less racist and less sexist today than it was 50 years ago. That's a good thing. But it's changed in other ways that are not good and not healthy for kids. So for example, 50, 50 plus years ago, Sam Cooke had a number one hit song. He sang, don't know much about history. He <laughs> sang, now I don't claim to be an A student. But I'm trying to be, because maybe by being an A student baby, I could win your love for me. He goes on to mention French, geometry, and trigonometry, a subject in which he's going to try harder to earn an A rather than a B, because he believes that by becoming an A student, he will raise his status in the eyes of the pretty girl. That was characteristic of American culture 50 years ago. That was a number one hit song. 50 years ago, American culture, the culture of people who spoke English at home, was the culture of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Simon and Garfunkel. That's not the culture that kids are living in today. So tonight we'll talk about the culture of Akon, Eminem, 50 Cent, Bruno Mars, mm, Miley yeah. Cyrus. You cannot imagine any of those singers talking about how they're going to try harder to earn an A instead of a B on their trigonometry except as a joke. Uh, on the contrary, as I'll mention tonight, Akon claims to be a convicted felon. He claims to have served two years for Grand Theft Auto in the Georgia State Penitentiary, a claim which turns out to be false. He's never been convicted of anything, and he's never been in a penitentiary except to perform. So American culture has changed from a culture in which young men wanted to think they were scholars, trying hard to earn an A instead of a B, to a culture in which you'll find many young men today who would like you to think they're convicted felons or gang members, even if they are not. Mm -hmm. And that, that part of the change is a change for the worse. And parents mm -hmm. need to understand that their child is not growing up in the culture of the Andy Griffith Show or Gidget or the Flying Nun. Their kid is growing up in the culture of Akon, Eminem, 50 Cent, Bruno Mars. We're going to talk more about that culture. We're going to look at the number one songs, prize, Grammy Award winning songs by Bruno Mars and Childish Gambino, also known as Donald Glover. We're going to see just how toxic some aspects of American culture are. Parents need to know this because kids are influenced by what they see and what they hear. And if your kid is alone in their bedroom listening to Bruno Mars, Miley Cyrus, Justin Bieber, Akon, Childish Gambino, 
they are being immersed in the culture of disrespect, a culture that teaches them that it's cool and funny to be disrespectful to adults and to one another. And that culture drives many bad behaviors and it is utterly inimical to academic achievement. If you think it's cool to be disrespectful, you're not gonna work hard to get an A instead of a B in Spanish grammar. Well, and it also sounds like too, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking, you know, my hope for my kids would be that if they do see something, that they would come ask me. That they would say, hey, this is what this guy is talking about. I'm not sure if that fits in with what you've taught me. And it sounds like that's, from your experience, that's not even happening. That kids aren't going to their parents as experts and saying, hey, you're older, wiser than me. Well, they're not. Because, again, American culture, we'll talk about the culture disrespect. We'll talk about the Disney Channel which now relentlessly presents parents as incompetent, clueless, and out of touch. And if a kid is watching the Disney Channel and getting that message, which I will explain tonight, is broadcast relentlessly from American television, uh, why would they ask their parents? The the media, YouTube, television has taught them parents are the last people you would ask. Parents are totally out of touch. You want to ask same-age peers because they are the ones who are knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who can give you guidance. We have developed a culture in which children are taught to look to other kids for advice. And I'll demonstrate that in my talk to Mm -hmm. parents tonight. I demonstrated that in the opening chapters of my book, The Collapse Mm -hmm. of Parenting. And that's a really toxic culture. Mm -hmm. And it is really without precedent. There is no enduring culture where kids teach other kids Mm -hmm. how to be adults. Mm -hmm. In every enduring culture, the grown-ups teach the kids. Mm -hmm. And we are losing that, and one result is we've got this explosion in anxiety, depression, and disengagement among American kids sitting in their bedrooms, scrolling through Instagram and YouTube, looking for guidance, looking for guidance which they're getting from other kids. Mm-hmm. They're looking in the wrong place. When it sounds like there's just a complete and total lack of wisdom in, in, in general because you're, you're having kids educate kids and all wisdom is folly and all folly seems to be wisdom. So again, in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, and in my talk tonight, I will give parents some very concrete guidelines. What do you need to do differently? Well, no earbuds, no headsets in the car. When you are in the car with your kid, you should be listening to her and she should be listening to you, not to Miley Cyrus or Justin Bieber or Bruno Mars. Uh, Yeah, you can listen to music in the car, but you're listening to the same music. But we've got a lot of kids, and look, I have done some version of this talk in town and country, and West County, and Chesterfield, and I can tell you there's a lot of affluent parents who are picking up their kids in Carline, and the kids are putting on a headset or earbuds as soon as they climb into their parents' car. Don't do that. No earbuds, no headsets in the car. Time in the car is special. It's private time. It's great time for you and your child to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I love that. So... Thinking about, you know, within our context, um, talking to Christian parents, how can we integrate the, the spiritual component mm-hmm. into this? Okay. So tonight I'm going to quote from Deuteronomy 6, uh, exactly that point. So Deuteronomy 6, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. 
That next phrase is usually translated, teach them diligently to your children. But that's not what the Hebrew says. It's not even close. It would be easy to say that in biblical Hebrew. The verb would be lamed, to teach. But not as, that is not the verb. The verb is vishinantam. Shanan is the verb. What does shanan mean? Shanan means to chisel in stone. Hmm. So the better translation of Deuteronomy 6-7 would be inscribe them, incise them on the hearts of your children. And you'll find that exegesis on page 133 of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. On the next page, I quote Jennifer Finney Boylan, a regular columnist for the New York Times, who wrote a column about what is enlightened parenting. And I quote verbatim from her column. She says, and I'm quoting now, she says that enlightened parenting means setting your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. And if in so doing they become a stranger to you, then so be it, end quote. That may seem enlightened, but it is not. It is a dereliction of duty. If you set your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong, and they speak English and they live in the United States, what they're going to discover is Akon, Eminem, Bruno Mars, mainstream pornography, Miley Cyrus, the cult of fame and wealth. Look, what is childhood for? And I mean that quite literally. A four-year-old horse is a mature adult. The Kentucky Derby is raced with three-year-olds. A four-year-old child's barely begun, and a horse is a bigger animal than a human. Why? Humans are children or adolescents for more, more years than most animals live. Why? What's the point? We don't have to guess. We have scholars who've studied this. And the answer the scholars give is human childhood is as long as it is because it takes the parents and the grown-ups many years to teach the child right and wrong. Mm. That New York Times advice that enlightened parenting means letting your child loose to discover for themselves their own right and wrong is profoundly unhuman. Mm. It's not what we are meant to do. It's not what we're hardwired mm. to do as a species. Mm. We are hardwired as a species for parents and the grown-ups to teach the kids right and wrong. And that really gets to the heart of that meaning of my, the title of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. That too many parents now think the New York Times is right. That you should set your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. And that's a dereliction of duty. And the result is kids who are anxious, depressed, and disengaged. It's profoundly unhealthy and unhuman. Which is not what any good, well-meaning parent would want for their child. That's right. So part of the, the question is, well, how did we get here? And I do go into that a little bit in the book. But that's not really what the book is about. Because this is where we find ourselves. We find sure. ourselves in a country where some of the leading universities and, and the New York Times are telling parents, set your child free. The California State Department of Education now says you should tell your five-year-old that they can choose to be a girl or a boy, and that's enlightened wisdom as far as the California State Board of Education is, is, is concerned. It is not enlightened wisdom. It is unwisdom. It contradicts the science. It's driven by ideology. So kids are now immersed in a, in a culture that's becoming very toxic. Mm -hmm. And so the focus of my book is to empower that parent to stand up and do the right thing, do what they really know in their hearts they should be doing. But unfortunately, if they read the New York Times or live in California, they're being pushed not to do. So it takes a growing amount of courage to be a good parent in the yes, United States. it does. Let me, let me ask one, one more question, and, and we're, we're running out of time here. 
as a partnership school, we define ourselves as a partnership school, wanting to work with parents, what we see is often our passion for a child to grow up and be a, an adult that is a good employee, a good employer, a good spouse, a good parent, etc. Um, and parents know that it's also their innate um, ability to, to care diligently for their children. And so at times, a school and parents can find it, it at odds with each other, mm-hmm. whereas in the past, it was always school and parents that seemed to, to be um, partnering together. Mm-hmm. And conflict's going to happen, and Maria and I talk about that all the time with our families. We know that conflict will happen. How would you encourage us as a school mm-hmm. and our parents as partners with us in the education and nurture of their child to, to work through conflict together uh, for the betterment of that child? Right. So actually I have a workshop for teachers titled Dealing with Difficult Parents. And we talk about the fact that as recently as 20 years ago, if a kid was cheating and was caught red-handed, that kid would be disciplined by the school, but he would face more discipline at home. Mm -hmm. He would get in more trouble at home because the teacher would call the parents and they would suspend privileges and and that kid would absolutely face uh, uh, consequences at home. In, in many cases, that alliance is now broken. Mm. And, they, and, I, and I share stories of schools I visited where the kid is caught cheating and the parents swoop in like attorneys demanding evidence and mounting a defense. Mm-hmm. And there's now a hostile adversarial attitude between the parents and the school. So when I meet with teachers to do that workshop, I say, how do we restore the alliance? Mm. And my short answer, it's a half day workshop, but my short answer is you need to show the parents you and I are on the same team. We both want the same things. We both want your daughter to grow up to be the best person she can be, to be successful, to be confident, uh, to fulfill her potential. You want that, we want that. We are on the same team. We are not adversaries, we are allies. Now how can we work together to help your daughter to be the best person she can be? And again, there's been a change. 20 years ago, American parents often would say, hey, I'd rather you get a C on the test honestly than cheat and get an A. Mm-hmm. And yet, American parents now are less likely to say that. American parents today are more likely to say, hey, you want to get into Stanford? You want to get into MIT? You've got to have amazing grades. You're not just competing against American kids anymore. You're competing against from kids from Asia and Europe. You've got to have amazing grades. And there's been an explosion in cheating in the United States, which I document. You need to bring the parents in and say, look, we need to teach your child, we need to teach every child that being honest, being virtuous is more important than getting an A on a test. And that's not just a sermon. Mm. That's a robust empirical finding, as I'll share Mm -hmm. tonight. In longitudinal cohort studies, when you look at kids at age 12 and then follow them for 20 years, What characteristic of a child at age 12 predicts whether they will be healthy, wealthy, and happy 20 years down the road? It's not whether they got an A or a B in middle school Spanish. It's virtue and character. That's a robust empirical finding. So you make sure parents understand that. That look, our first mission is to teach virtue and character. Not because it's a sermon, but it could be, but because the scholarship, the research shows that's what predicts good outcomes down the road. You want that for your child, we want that for your child, so we need to work together. In order to value 
to have your child value that, you have to value that. Yes. As I say in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, you cannot teach a virtue which you yourself do not mm. possess. You cannot teach your child to be honest if they see you being dishonest. Sure. And in the final chapter of my book, I say, in order to be a better parent, you are going to have to become a better person. Mm -hmm. And I say, look, I'm not some saint. I have great deficiencies in my own character that I'm working mm -hmm. on. But this is not optional. Teaching virtue and character to your child is not an optional exercise mm -hmm. for the top parents. It is required for every one sure. of us. And this is what the research shows. So knowing your shortcomings and your own failings, you still must teach virtue and character to your child, which means you must do your best to model virtue and character. You know, Jesus said, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Why on earth would he say such a thing? He <laughs> knows we can't do it. What he's telling us is you have to keep trying. You have to keep trying. That's why Christians have always regarded despair as a sin. Mm. Despair isn't something that just happens to you because you've had a tough lot in life. Despair is a choice that you make, that I'm never going to get better, mm. that is always going to be terrible. And that's why hope is a Christian virtue, because we are commanded by Jesus, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We have to try our best, even though we know we will fail, we are commanded to do our best. Mm. Yeah, that's a, a good heart check. That's even, a great one for me. Yeah, even <laughs> as a parent to really consider, you know, what we value and what we value is what we're going to teach our kids. So where do we want our values and our priorities to be? Hmm. Dr. Sex, thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks yeah. for visiting with us. And um, parents, please, please, please check out uh, his books, uh, The Collapse of Parenting, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge and Why Gender Matters. Please, please, please do. They're phenomenal books, and, uh, and we're just grateful to have you, so we yep. look forward to hearing more from you. And uh, if I may make a plug, uh, everyone's welcome to go to my website, leonardsachs.com. Uh, you can send me an email through the website or get on my listserv, see when I'll be back. Hopefully back in All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.